0: This is John, your host. We're so glad to finally be back with more Speaking of Work. This episode, we're excited to be joined by John Tappan. Oh, wow. This summer, John worked as an intern here at Speaking of Work as part of the Humanities for Public Good Initiative from the Oberman Center at the University of Iowa. We're so grateful for John and the Oberman Center's support, and you'll be hearing a lot more from John later in the episode. Next, the usual reminder. This season, we're telling a multi-part story. If you haven't listened to the earlier episodes, especially episode three, you might want to start there and then come back. Now, on with the show. Will you tell the injunction story?
1: Oh, well, okay, it's kind of humorous. My mother was a widow, Irish widow, spirited woman, at the time of the strike. She was dating Judge Joe Leary, also Irish. I think that's what brought them together. After we went on strike, uh, Judge Leary issued an injunction which required us to go back to work, or we all could have been jailed. We chose to ignore the injunction. I remember that's what some of my friends said, said. I can support the strike. I cannot support you teachers disobeying an injunction. And that was hard for me to defend. I really didn't have much of a defense. I was very uncomfortable with that my mother said privately to the judge oh joe you wouldn't send my daughter to jail would you oh, she was very upset and he said to her loretta if you came to me begging with tears in your eyes and your rosary beads rattling I, that would not move me not to send your daughter to jail. Don't you realize she is disobeying an injunction set by a judge? But Mother called me up and she said, You better do something. Joe's going to send you to jail. <laughs> I said, Oh, Mother, now calm down. You know I don't think it's going to come to that. But of course they did jail as a result of us not obeying the injunction. They jailed our officers.
0: That's Jane Abel. In the spring of 1970, she was a teacher in Keokuk, Iowa, a little industrial town on the Mississippi River, right where Missouri, Illinois, and Iowa meet. In May, she joined almost 200 teachers and other school workers in a strike against the Keokuk School District. The Keokuk strike wasn't the first teacher strike in Iowa history, but it had been so long since the last one, maybe as long as 50 years, that even most journalists at the time talked about it like it was the first. The strike had been the result of years of simmering grievances over everything from pay to curriculum to gender discrimination. But back then, Iowa didn't have a law governing collective bargaining between public sector workers like teachers and their employers. The Keokuk School District, like a few around the state, had agreed to negotiate with school workers, but only on terms of their, that is, the school district's, choosing. In Keokuk, that had worked out okay until 1970, when the board decided to radically cut teacher pay and to impose their own settlement on the teachers and their organization— the Keokuk Education Association, or KEA, the teachers and other school workers decided to strike. And that meant breaking the law, defying that injunction that Jane told us about. But just when it seemed the teachers had lost, the tables were about to turn. I'm John McCurley, and you're listening to Speaking of Work, the podcast from the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. This is Season 1, Citizen Worker, Episode 4. The jail cell contract.
1: The only thing I could think of the night we were jailed was I, we were in adjoining cells, hmm. and I could hear them having a wee big time playing cards hmm. all night long. And there I was in a jail cell all but myself, and I could look around me in the cell and see the names that were printed on the walls of some girls that I had had as students.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That afternoon, Friday, May 8th, as Billy Peters and the rest of the teacher leaders sat in jail, events moved swiftly around them. First, the KAA put into action its plan to deal with the arrests. Before the hearing, they had selected a second group of leaders to take over in the case the first group was arrested. The second group included Miles Brewer, who we met way back in episode one. Next, they directed KEA members and supporters to convene at the city jail. Unfortunately, we don't have a detailed description of the protest at the jail. but we do have a few descriptions from people who were there. Tom's wife, Kathy, remembered the panic of not knowing what had happened to her husband earlier that afternoon.
1: I didn't know where he was, you know. Right. I had a pain in the center of my chest, <laughs> right. but I didn't tell anybody about it. I don't think I even told Tom about it.
0: Once she'd confirmed that he'd been arrested, she made her way to the jail, where she was able to meet with Billy Peters. Billy Peters.
1: She was waving to the students from the cell window Mm. because they were marching outside. And she told me we had to encourage them by keeping up the momentum.
0: Dale Estina, the NEA staffer who had come down from Minnesota to help the KEA, recalled students handing bags of cookies to teachers through the jail's barred windows and a caravan of supporters driving by in their cars. Dale had helped to plan the protest and. Wait a minute. Oh right, sorry. I'll let him tell it.
2: I don't think that the board could take the public relations pressure and the pressure that was beginning to build with the rank and file populace in the in the area, the regional area, not just Keokuk. Now, if you're a school board member and you see this was being done, and you are in, uh, you know, looking at, oh, wait a minute now. we got to put a stop to this now if they're going to try to try to stop and they wanted to take the, you know release the people out of jail and that's when I said no no you put them in jail you're going to have to go in jail to settle this contract and negotiate with them right there
0: okay As we've said a number of times while telling this story, we're often in a position in which we know what happened, but not exactly why. According to Morris Wilson, and remember, he's the Keokuk administrator who went on to write his dissertation about the strike, the direction from the management side was coming from Superintendent Leland. As Wilson writes, Leland called him that afternoon to tell him about the court's decision. According to Wilson, at the end of their conversation, Leland said, I'm going to tell the board that they must settle. Several decades later, when I asked teachers what they thought had changed, some observers pointed to the ways in which the arrests had violated community norms, especially those around gender. Here's Janet Feifler, friends.
1: I think they thought that the association would back down and say, "Okay, you can have your way. On the other hand, we had dug our heels in. We felt that what we were presenting was not out of line when we're talking about the educational philosophy and the impact that teachers can have if you work together cooperatively. Um, And I think probably the straw that broke the camel's back was the fact that Billy Peters was a woman and they sent her to jail. And the people in the community did not like that.
0: Others seem to think that this was a moment when board members pushed back against Leland's leadership and took back control of the process. Here's Keokuk teacher Joe Campbell.
3: It's my understanding that uh, Ken Matthews, who was uh, the uh, board member and CEO at Union Electric at that time. Ameren owns it now, but it was Union Electric. Les Fowler was the CEO at the Hubbinger Company, also on the board. When the judge ruled that the officers had to go to jail, they said, it's my understanding, they said, This has gone too far. And I think they were both the ones that Miles bargained with to get the settlement. That's the way I remember it.
0: Here's Miles Brewer.
4: Well, the community support Mm. was still there, even with our folks in jail. In fact, it solidified it. Uh, The president of the board was director of the Union Electric Powerhouse down Mm. there, a utility doesn't have to worry about strikes. And, and so he was, his being the president of the board, his leadership capacity caused the board to implode mm-hmm. toward do what you have to do to get this finished.
0: It's clear that something about the arrests and their immediate aftermath broke the board's commitment to following through with its original plan, to force their vision of the master contract on the teachers. By late that evening, board negotiators were sitting down at their office on Blondeau Street with KEA representatives to reopen negotiations. For this part of the story... We need to turn back to Miles Brewer, one of the few people who was sitting at the negotiations table that night.
4: Tom and Billy were able to participate in the negotiations by runner (laughs) in -hmm. the jail. Mm -hmm. And then I was, and uh, another fellow who was on the second team, uh, he was a science teacher. He and I uh, coordinated uh, the final solution.
0: So what did that final solution look like? First, it adjusted the district calendar to take into account the days missed because of the strike. Next, it dropped the discriminatory dependence allowance, that is, the stud fee, from Episode 1. It dropped an allowance for teachers who had a master's degree in their primary teaching field, cutting back on the district's incentives for highly educated teachers that we also heard about in Episode 1. It provided a term life insurance policy of $5,000 for certified teachers. It guaranteed that the district wouldn't take any reprisals against striking teachers, and it agreed to drop the request for an injunction that had resulted in the teacher's arrest. And lastly, and most important of all, it retained the index salary system. At least for now, the rainbow schedule was dead. Board passed the contract with a vote of five ayes, one abstention, and one nay. The lone no vote came from Richard Horner, heir to a local box company fortune, graduate of the Harvard Business School, and owner of the Keokuk Daily Gate City newspaper. Along with his vote, he submitted a statement explaining his objections. In the statement, he focused on a theme that was common at the time and that has resurfaced in recent years, law and order.
5: In light of the fact that the school board will probably take action tonight to approve a settlement with the KEA, I would like to issue a dissenting statement. It seems to me that certain obligations of the school board are not being adequately reflected in this current settlement. We have a legal and moral responsibility to provide the kind of education to the children of this district that we think the residents of the school district want. I can't believe that these people would actually desire to have our children taught by 161 teachers who have knowingly broken the law of the state of Iowa. Furthermore, I do not believe these same people would condone having our children taught by those four members of the KEA who will now have jail records. I fully realize that the alternate is, at the moment, to discharge 161 teachers for breach of contract. I also recognize that the job of replacing teachers by the opening of the fall session would be a monumental task. Perhaps not all of them would be replaced within the period of time we have to work. However, it would be better to do this than to teach our children, through the actions of this board and the KEA, that breaking the law really makes no difference. And that is surely what we will be teaching them if we allow these teachers to return to the classrooms.
0: Like so many other people who use this law in order language, then as now, Horner didn't stop to ask any questions like, where did the law come from? Who enacted or interpreted it in this way, and why? Whose interests did it serve, and were those interests really the same as the public interest? If the law didn't serve the public interest, was it possible, maybe even necessary, to break it, in order to serve the public good. These questions might sound radical, and perhaps they are. But remember, they're also the same questions that animated generations of labor and civil rights activists to challenge segregation, economic exploitation, and voter suppression. And they were the same questions that Martin Luther King Jr. had been asking only two years before, in 1968, when he was assassinated while supporting a strike by sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Here in Keokuk, however, the issue of law and order played out in a way that, at least for the moment, advantaged the teachers and their allies. Because, whether or not a majority of Keokuk residents believed that the district's teachers and other school workers had been justified in breaking the law, by the evening of May 8th, a majority of board members were acting as if Community support had shifted decisively away from the board and toward the teachers. And ultimately, in that moment, that's what mattered. Or, as Miles Brewer said,
4: community is more important than our new superintendent. Mm-hmm.
0: the teachers were facing their own questions. The next morning, May 9th, the members of the KAA came back for one more meeting at Trinity United Methodist Church. Earlier that morning, they'd approved the jail-sale agreement and then gone to the jail where they collected Coffee, Ilatalo, Peters, and Gaylord. Now, they had to decide what to do about the strike. They'd voted to approve the strike, and now they had to vote to end it. Although the meeting minutes don't record a debate, Lestina remembered that there was one.
2: Once the strike was over and we had won, and uh, the uh, the local folks, you know, wanted to take on um, uh, school board and, and administrators and so forth, uh, and uh, I, I had to in that meeting say, now I'm going to seem like uh, a uh, uh, middle of the road, merely mouth person. But you can't win taking on duly elected uh, individuals without the electoral pro- process. You, you, there's no way that you we can really be successful in impeaching them but what you have to do is organize and get ready for the elections and vote in people who are open-minded and sympathetic to our cause and that, um, that was a quite a, um, of a an emotional meeting there at the end and as as uh, I don't know, just pure happenstance of, of one of those great, large thunderstorms came up while we were having this meeting, and it just mirrored the way the meeting was going. And finally, it uh, it, it calmed down to the point where uh, <clears throat> the Tom Coffey, Cluess Walden, and so forth said, you know, and Cluess really would like to have gone after him, but he said, I, I, I see you. I, I see your point, uh, uh, and uh, they, uh, the, the whole meeting started to calm down and settle down. And don't you know the thunderstorm and the rains and the lightning and so forth calmed down at the same time? It was really a coincidence. Uh, I, I'll, I'll never forget the way that happened.
0: After the break, the strike's aftermath, and the continuing struggle for the rights of school workers in Keokuk during the early 1970s. Speaking of Work is brought to you by the University of Iowa Labor Center, providing educational programs and research support to Iowa workers and their organizations since 1951. Right now, the Labor Center is offering customized classes for local unions. Topics include stewards training, the Family Medical Leave Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, workers' compensation, labor history, health and safety, organizing, and much, much more. The center's staff work with you to customize agendas to meet your needs. You pick dates and times that work for you and your members, and labor educators provide handouts and set up any technology needed to participate. Classes include interactive discussions, real life scenarios, and up-to-date information so you can keep stewards and members engaged, informed, and connected. Don't wait. Schedule a class now by contacting the Labor Center at labor-center at uiwa.edu or call 319-335-4144.
3: A strike will always divide a community. That's Joe Campbell.
0: He'd been a rank-and-file PE and science teacher during the strike, but quickly rose into leadership over the next few years.
3: In a community the size of Keokuk, you know, it's going to split the town. You know, whether it's 60, 40, 70, 30, 50, 50, it doesn't matter. It's going to be split.
0: Here's what he said when I asked him if the strike had made the KEA stronger or weaker.
3: That's a really hard Hard question to answer. I, like the community, there was there was a bit of a split, you know, in the KEA. I think we had around 200 teachers at that time. I think we lost 30% left that year. A lot of those, all right. let me put it this way, some of those would have been anti-strike people, but some of them were very strong KEA people who just didn't like the landscape. They, they couldn't see it getting better anytime soon. Had an opportunity to leave, they left. So we have, I don't know, maybe 35, 40 new teachers come in, rookies like I was a year before. Most of them joined the association, but they're not strong, and most of them are first-year teachers. So of the core of the KEA was probably more committed and stronger, but the organization as a whole lost some key people, which would have maybe made it weaker. So, you know, it's a tough question to answer.
0: In this environment, the KEA turned its attention to the issue that Lastina had recommended, politics. Specifically electing friendly candidates to the school board.
3: Well, you know, again, there's no bargaining law. So political is the only way to solve the problem,
0: political pressure. But as the KAA soon realized, it was going to take more than just voting or even being active at election time to accomplish their goals. To be successful, they were going to have to both expand on old tools and develop new ones. First they established the position of political action chair, which, during these years, was filled by someone we've already come to know, Janet Feifler-Friends. Young, energetic teacher
3: was super in organizing politics in Keokuk.
0: Janet took the lead in redeveloping something that they had used during the strike, the neighborhood coffee.
3: Teachers are part of the community. And, you know, the teachers have friends, they have, you know, associates, you know, uh, uh, Church, you know, member associates, uh, you know, Little League, Pony League, you know, um, swimming, you know, all the things that average people do,
0: teachers do, believe it or not. Once teachers had had a chance to develop these relationships by talking about things other than elections, it made it much easier to mobilize these groups of allies at election time. And... While this process wasn't quick or easy, over time, the KEA did succeed in replacing unfriendly board members with friendly ones.
3: Well, you know, we were we were involved in helping certain people get elected, yes. I like to, I like, I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a positive guy. We weren't unseating somebody, we were getting somebody elected. <laughs>
0: This new political strategy saw its first big test in the spring of 1973. That year, negotiations had broken down again. This time, the issue was so-called merit pay, that is, the system which administrators claimed rewarded the best teachers, but the K. E. A. argued allowed administrators to hand out money and opportunities to their favorites. Just like in 1970, the two sides went to impasse. But here, in 1973, Leland did something different. He cut a deal.
3: I get a call. Word in Bob Leland calls me on the phone
0: one evening.
3: He said, "Come over to the house." Okay, Bob. So I go over. He said, "Let's go to the basement." So we go to the basement. This is part of the deal. So he had. I'm not not a drinker, okay? Drink a beer once in a while. He had a, I think, I don't know what size it was, pint, I don't know, whiskey sitting in the middle of the table. Says, let me fix you a drink. Okay, okay, you're the boss. So he says, how can we settle this? And I said, it's on the table. And uh, he says, you got to give me something. He says, I can do that. I can get that sold if you'll give me something. We had what was referred to as a stud fee. I said, okay, we'll give you that. Eliminate it. Head of the household is what they call it. I said, just get rid of it. He said, okay, we're done. Have another drink.
0: (laughs) Okay. So at this point, some of you might be asking, wait, I thought they already got rid of the stud fee. Unfortunately, this is one of the places where the sources conflict. In 1970, multiple sources report that the dependency allowance was cut in the jail cell contract, but Campbell was adamant that he had used what he called the head of household allowance, which he associated with the stud fee, to get rid of merit pay in 1973. Without more detailed sources, we can't tell if Campbell's memory is wrong or if the dependency allowance and head of household were two different things that both made up the stud fee. Regardless, the story is important for at least two reasons. First, it's an example of an association president who knew what he could trade and what he couldn't. By that, I mean Campbell was able to cut this deal only because he knew that it would fly with the membership, which, as we saw all the way back in episode one, had been trying to get rid of these kinds of discriminatory provisions for years. And, as we've also seen, since none of this was taking place in accordance with state law, each side could pretty well do whatever it could get away with. But, even then, the first thing that Campbell did that morning after leaving Leland's house was to call the KEA negotiations chair.
3: Call him on the phone 3 in the morning. I said, go have breakfast with me.
0: They met at an all-night diner where Campbell told him the story. And he says, we got it.
3: We can do this.
0: From there, they started the telephone tree.
3: At 6.30 in the morning, we meet... At the junior high auditorium, and I lay it all out and tell them. I said, "I'm recommending that we're in a ballot. Ballots will be in your mailboxes."
0: The vote
3: passed, and uh, that's it. I got rid of Maripé.
0: The late-night meeting between Leland and Campbell is also a powerful example of the shift that had taken place in the district's administration since the strike. But what caused this shift? Again, all we can do is speculate. Perhaps Leland realized that, with a divided board, he would need more than direct pressure to get what he regarded as a satisfactory result. Like the teachers, Leland wasn't working under the terms of a state bargaining law. Although that could give him a lot of flexibility, that flexibility didn't always give him what he wanted all by itself. If he miscalculated, as he had in 1970, he could very well end up with teachers in jail and the community against him. So, if the strike hadn't made Leland abandon his efforts to cut teacher pay, it does appear to have taught him that direct confrontation— especially to the courts, was something he wanted to avoid, even if it meant undercutting members of the board. We can see this even more clearly in what happened in the negotiations that took place between 1973 and 1974. This time, the KEA took on another pay issue, what they called barriers. These were limits to how teachers could move up to higher pay levels in the salary schedule. Once again, they ran into major opposition from board members bent on cutting costs, so much so that KEA members again considered a strike.
3: This time I have a... Pretty good percentage, you know, it's still way below majority, but pretty good percentage of KEA members that are talking strike again to get to barriers. And again, you know, board meetings, uh, gyms full of people, pol- you know, we're, po- we're politicking, George winey people like that, you know, are working really hard behind the scenes.
0: This time, the KEA's main opponent was Ron Scott a manager at Midwest Carbide, one of the city's small industrial employers. Scott hadn't been around on the board during the strike, but he was a lot like those people who had led the charge. Scott was well acquainted with union negotiations. His employees were members of the oil, chemical, and atomic workers Local 6249. In fact, they'd been on strike in 1973. Tough guy. (laughs) He
3: was... He was a uh, hard-nosed, and, and he uh,
0: he didn't like unions at all. But unlike in 1970, the hardliners like Scott didn't have a clear majority. And when it became clear that the KA was willing to go so far as a pay freeze in order to get rid of the barriers, Leland made another call to Campbell. I don't know, a day or two, three,
3: four, Bob Leland calls me, and he said, you want to get back together again? And I said, well, (laughs) is anything going to happen? He said, we might be able to do something.
0: Whatever deal they cut, and Campbell didn't offer any details. It undermined Scott and the hardliners. So we go back to the table. Ron's still there. Ron says, OK, he Says,
3: you've got a salary freeze. We agree to that. What else do you agree on? I said, no, we don't have an agreement. I said, there was a contingency to that salary freeze. I said, we're not We're not going to freeze. If you're going to keep those barriers on there, we're not freezing. He said, oh, you can't do that. And he starts screaming. That's amateur bargaining. You know, you can't. You have it on the table. You can't withdraw it. I said, I just did. You want to take the barriers off? We'll take the freeze. I said, you don't take the barriers off? We're not talking. The freeze is off the table. They both come off the table.
0: Scott was furious, but it worked.
3: Well, finally we got the modification of the barriers we didn't get them off but we got them bumped so that the evaluation process wasn't penalizing near as many people plus we got a raise i don't remember what it was settled and i left (laughs) keacock that's that's basically
0: it 1974 was the last year that the KEA would negotiate with the district without a statewide legal framework in place. Earlier that year, the state's Republican-dominated legislature had passed, and the state's Republican governor had signed a law to regulate collective bargaining by Iowa's public school teachers and other public employees. It was also Leland Swansong. In late 1974, he tendered his resignation as superintendent. In many ways, Leland's tenure had represented a transition. As the flush post-war years gave way to the crisis of the late 1970s and 1980s, Iowa's business leaders had searched for a way to shore up their own profits, even if it meant unraveling the investments that they had made in the brief decades since World War II. These efforts ran up against the demands of Iowa workers, who were determined not only to protect the improvements that they'd made since the war, but to build on them. By 1974, both these old orders, the post-war flush times, as well as the struggles outside of the law during the early 1970s, were gone. And a new, contradictory order was taking shape, an order that owed its existence in no small part to what had taken place in Keokuk. Next time on Speaking of Work, teachers and other public sector workers take the struggle for public sector bargaining to Des Moines, and the fight is on for a law. Special thanks to Michael Benson for his performance as the Reverend Donald Boston back in episode three. Thanks also to Joe Mason for reprising his role Is Robert Leland. Speaking of work is a production of the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. ILHOP is a 40-year-old oral history project in collaboration between the University of Iowa Labor Center, the UI Libraries, the State Historical Society of Iowa, the Iowa Labor History Society, and the Iowa Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO. The views expressed in this podcast are of project staff, not necessarily those of ILHOP's partners and collaborators. Our theme song, Enemy, comes courtesy of Matthew Grimm. You can find his latest album, Dumpster Fire Days, at all major music retailers, and you can follow him on Twitter at GrimReality or on his website, grimreality.net. Dance by Dave Brubeck. Other music by Matthew Grimm and Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for listening and please remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you find us. You can find out more about Ilhop and about our show, speaking of work at its home on the web, iowalaborhistory.org.